This is Persuasion and the Public Mind. I'm Mark Bourdine. Back with me today to talk about theories of persuasion is Tim Borchers, author of the book Persuasion in the Media Age. There are a variety of theories that can help us understand the persuasion process. This is certainly not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Individually, theories are incomplete in their analysis of persuasion, but when their insights are combined, they offer a more complete understanding of the persuasion process. Before we delve into individual theories, Tim, what would you say are the essential aspects of a useful theory? Well, I think a a theory basically is an answer to a question. It helps you to explain data that you've seen. So you might uh, see an advertisement, you might hear a political speech and think, boy, I really really need to understand that, really need to try to pick apart what happened there. So it helps us explain our surroundings, helps us explain events that we encounter. It also, if it's done well, it helps us to predict future events. So we could look at a political speech and see that it seemed to be successful and predict that other political speeches would follow a similar pattern. So theories really help us to predict. Uh, they, they really are simple to understand. So the, the best kind of uh, proof for, for a good theory is it has to be simple. It has to be something that uh, people can, can readily understand. It has to be able to help us uh, test hypotheses. So we have to be able to pose questions uh, for the theory and have the theory help us to come up with an answer to that question. And then finally, it has to be practical. It's, it's no use having theories that are so esoteric that they can't be used by, by people. They have to be something that we can use on a daily basis, something that we can recall, something that, again, helps us make sense of our surroundings. Persuasion theory can be traced back a long way, at least back to the philosopher Aristotle. His uh, theory was developed primarily for the oral culture of his time, but many of his ideas are still used today. Can you tell us a little about his key concepts? Sure. Um, So Aristotle really was interested to know how legal uh, communication worked, because at that time they had a lot of court trials to determine things, and and politics was was new. And so he really tried to understand uh, those two things. So probably some of his most uh, famous and and still uh, very useful theories are around proof, or the kind of proof that a, that a speaker in those days would use. And he said speakers can use ethos, which is their credibility. So they can talk about their background, they can talk about their experience, and that helps them to be uh, persuasive. They can appeal to audiences' emotions, so they can tell compelling stories, they can point to examples to help people feel a certain way. And they can use logical reasoning. So they can use uh, data, they can use evidence, they can point to uh, a chain of reasoning to help you come up with a conclusion. So I think it might be interesting to think about political candidates who may be running for office in 2020. A lot of the presidential candidates are starting starting to emerge or, or they have emerged. And it might be useful just as a screening tool to predict which ones might be effective by listening to how they talk about their background and experience and how they can leverage that to persuade audiences. Uh, really listen to, are they, are they using emotional appeals? And then do they have a good solid base of data that they're reasoning from? And Aristotle would say that the best candidates would have a mixture of all those different types of, of reasoning styles. And you can probably think about examples of politicians today who, who blend those styles pretty well. Okay, so let's 
get into some recent theories and their implications, starting with something called semiotics, which is essentially the assigning of meaning to words through cultural codes. Most of us take word and symbol meaning for granted, but meaning can change depending on your personal experience and background. So fill, fill us in on uh, how this works. Well, I think it's it's really important to know that that symbols or words, uh, they're just made up. They're just arbitrary. Uh, the, the words that we use to describe a desk or a table could just as well be the word that we use to describe a chair. So they don't really have any kind of natural relationship usually to to what they represent. We have just come to agree that that's what we're going to call something that we eat dinner at. Uh, we call that a table, but we could have called that just about any other thing. So it's really arbitrary. And as, as we've discussed, persuaders like to uh, challenge meaning. They like to come up with, with meaning. And so meaning is, is never taken for granted that even though we call that a table, uh, we certainly could call it other things. And a table example is probably something that's that's pretty straightforward. But if you take a Confederate flag, for instance, a Confederate flag means different things to different groups of people. And we've seen a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of competition these days to determine what that Confederate flag means. Sure. Is it something that's positive or is it something that's that's a racist and negative. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a constant battle to determine what that means. By itself, it means absolutely nothing. You know, a Confederate flag, like any other kind of flag, is just is just colored fabric with some stitching on it. So it's not anything different than a blanket you might cover up with. But because of how it's been endowed with meaning over so many years by so many different people, it comes to take on something that, that's very powerful in our culture. Mm-hmm. So... Um... I guess uh, reiterating a little bit on what you just said, since uh, some signs might have different meaning for different people, the persuader can take advantage of this ambiguity uh, when they communicate about products or services or ideas, correct? Correct. Uh, They can um, say say an Apple iPhone is, is something that has meaning outside of just being a simple phone. It has style, it has appearance, it has the Apple logo. And so um, if you're trying to sell an an Apple iPhone, uh, you certainly would feature those things to help uh, build the brand, to help build the image, and to, to to help persuade your potential consumers that they're the kind of person that needs to have an Apple iPhone or uh, a luxury car might be another example, or a a car commercial where it shows a Jeep uh, racing up the side of a mountain. Uh, They're they're trying to give meaning to that Jeep in that it's something that can help you have an exciting experience, an exciting lifestyle, when in fact, maybe you're only going to be driving it to work on a, on a city street commuting the whole time. But still, you would buy it because of, of how they position it, how they feature it, how they picture it, and to, to help you kind of imagine that you could be the kind of person that would drive a Jeep through the mountains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in your uh, book, you list um, audience-oriented theories and media theories. What's the main difference between the two types? Well, the audience-oriented theories would really be interested in kind of the psychology, uh, the personality of audience members. The media theories uh, bring the media into the equation as well. So a lot of the audience-centered theories could be interpersonal, they could be mediated, but they really focus on the psychology of the audience member as opposed to mediated theories, which, which introduce media as a key variable. 
Got it. All right. So with um, with regard to audience-oriented theories, there have been a few that have proven to be very useful in explaining how we process persuasive messages. Uh, can you give us a basic understanding of them? Probably one of the, the most famous ones is cognitive dissonance theory, and that says when you're presented with contradictory information, uh, you do one of five things. So if you um, hear something that disagrees with, with something that you believe to be true, uh, you could certainly be persuaded to accept the new idea, but most often than not, we resist it. So you could uh, seek more information. You might try to find something to corroborate your view. If you get contradictory information, you could simply avoid that, inter that information. Uh, you could watch news sources that don't talk about things that you don't agree with, for instance. Uh, you could reduce the importance of that, uh, which you often see people doing, oh, well, that's just not that important to me, uh, the, the something that they hold to be true. Or you could in introduce another element that would kind of mitigate or explain the difference between the two meanings that you've had. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times people will, if they're presented with evidence, say, about uh, health like they should work out a little bit more and they're not inclined to work out, they could point to scientific studies that are very confusing and don't point a clear direction one way or the other so that they can then kind of get themselves out of that uh, contradiction in their belief system. Another popular theory in this area is called the elaboration likelihood model. Tell us a little about that. The elaboration likelihood model is uh, a very famous theory that, that's been around, and it really says that people process messages through either their central route or through their uh, peripheral route. And their, their central route is uh, where they use logical reasoning, uh, where they really are considering uh, them themselves, they're considering their beliefs, they're considering everything that they're hearing about it, and then they come to a very uh, reasoned conclusion about whether to accept the message that they've been sent, or they use the peripheral route. Uh, the peripheral route might be something you see on a television commercial that has uh, pretty people, a fancy car, and flashy images, and you might be persuaded by those things. So. Uh, basically, the, the differences are that the peripheral route is um, often very short-term in terms of its persuasive ability. So you might see a fancy car commercial with pretty people and think for a minute, oh, I should get that car, but then you come to your senses and realize you probably can't afford that car. So it's often not very effective for lasting change. The, the central route is typically more lasting change because you've been able to incorporate the message into your belief system and it's become something that's become part of you. Um, it does require a lot of ability, though, to process messages centrally. You have to understand data. You might have to understand statistics, for instance. You might have to understand how surveys are done. You might have to understand a whole host of, of uh, components of the message that you're talking about. So it's a little bit more difficult. That's why a lot of times we just resort to the peripheral route because it's easy, it's simple, it's quick little one-liners that, that we can accept. But again, it doesn't often lead to true attitude change like the central route does. A key insight of this theory is that some types of persuasive appeals will be more effective when the audience is on autopilot. And other types will be more effective when the target audience is alert and attentive.
Well, we know persuaders use language and images to structure a reality that is favorable to their message. Turns out there's a theory for that, and it's called symbolic convergence. Here again is Tim Borchers. So symbolic convergence theory really says that um, people listen to stories and and stories become very real to us. Uh, We accept those stories as true. Uh, We repeat those stories to other people and we try to get everything to to basically fit into the story that, that we've been hearing. And so in the the theorist who came up with that, Ernest Borman, called them fantasies, but they weren't necessarily fantasies because they were uh, very real things that that people believed. He said that that oftentimes, if you think about like an inside joke that you might have with your friends, uh, that becomes um, an example of of how you've been able to share a reality with those people. And then when you share that reality with them, you can understand something at a far deeper level than people who are outside the group. And so eventually he says that people create a rhetorical vision, which is a common way of of seeing the world and that everything they they see, they, they fit into that. And I really think you can see that with politics today. We've got basically two competing rhetorical visions in the country right now. And politicians have a very difficult time breaking through to the other side just because we we tend to surround ourselves with the kinds of images, the messages uh, and the people who reflect our rhetorical vision, and we don't do a lot to get out to the um, to learn from the rhetorical vision of others. So uh, things become very siloed, they become very insulated, and um, they become very, very passionate, and they become very much a part of who we are as people. And so it's it's a result of the kinds of communication, the kinds of persuasion that we've been experiencing over the past few years have, have really been able to build up those rhetorical visions. And it will take a, a politician to to uh, really be able to articulate a message that presents a different rhetorical vision and that can get believers from both sides, I think, in order to, to break through some of that gridlock. I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, well, finally, uh, we come to a set of theories uh, that talk about the potential strength of media effects on the audience. Um, would you run through the highlights of those theories for us? So the one-shot model was a very simplistic model that looked at propaganda during World War II and said, oh, people were presented with a persuasive message. They seem to believe that message. So we believe that simply presenting them with that message uh, made them believe it. And so it was really um, discredited later on uh, where they found out there were multiple sources of information that people receive. And it was very simplistic to just say it was the kind of the one shot model, like getting a, a flu, um, like getting a flu shot. It, it, there's a lot of things that go into it. So then they developed the two-step flow of in, in information, which really looked at opinion leaders and said that, oh, there, there's like these mediators and there's a few people in each community that, that really are respected, that really get people to believe things. So if you could get to the opinion leaders, then you could persuade them masses. And that was all kind of uh, rejected as well as being a very simplistic uh, way of of looking at things and and as well with new media, very complicated in terms of just think about the number of opinion leaders that we might be presented with in a certain day. And then some researchers looked at the kinds of uses that people had for the media and then how how they gratified those uses. So we choose different media types based on what we want to get for it. So if you want to find 
uh, something to confirm your rhetorical vision or your view of politics, you know which news channel to watch because you're going to hear all the commentators kind of reinforcing your view. If you are interested in just uh, picking something to to zone out for the for the evening, you might pull up Netflix and find the latest show that everyone's talking about on Netflix and watch that. So we have different uses for the media, and and we know essentially where we can find media to fulfill those those uses. And then cultivation analysis um, is another theory, and that's where researchers really looked at the belief system of people who were exposed to particular types of media. And so some of the some of the research, the early research on that, found that people who watch a lot of television tend to think that crime is a bigger problem than it really is. So if you uh, watch a lot of television, you probably have the belief that crime is a bigger issue than people who don't watch a lot of television. So some interesting uh, research that they found to really look at why people tend to believe what they do based on the media that they're surrounded with. And then the final media that that's part of this group is the agenda setting theory. And this says that the the media might not persuade us necessarily, but they certainly do set the public's agenda. So if you pick up the newspaper, pretty much any newspaper around the country, you're going to probably see the same kinds of stories. If you watch uh, ABC News or NBC News or CBS News at night, you're probably going to see the same kinds of stories. And that's because the media tend to, to focus on this agenda of of information that that is um, presented to them, they're a very high power source, and so they they all tend to kind of coalesce around the same types of stories. It's very difficult to find uh, coverage of other topics, and so that's where people get into more specialized media or media that might um, maybe not be as powerful or as popular, but media that tell a different story or or have different stories for people to hear about. I'd like to thank Tim Borchers for being here once again. And if you want more details on the topics covered here today, please check our resources page at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Thanks for listening. See you soon.